God is good? And all the time? Tell me some things that come to your mind when you think about things that are really American. Apple pie. What else? Baseball. What else? Fireworks. What else? Who? Hot dog. Somebody said fried chicken. Who said that? I'm going to tell you what, Mildred. I plucked nine chickens by hand yesterday. I, I said, you know what, I'm going I'm to I'm take care of these chickens. I had no idea it would take all day. Now, I feel very American to be part of that experience. Do what now? Now I know. Well, that's what I was exactly thinking, the same thing. Apple pie, fireworks, and baseball. And few things are more American than... Uh, Hearing that crack of a bat, seeing little leaguers out there, uh, rooting for your favorite team, whether it be the Braves. My grandpa always watched the Braves. I think that was the only TV station he got that played baseball. So that's who we rooted for. And uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to connect a Christian message with a baseball mentality. And, you know, Jesus did this. He called these parables. Last night, Bella and I were reading out of her storybook Bible, and it talked about how Jesus taught in parables. And the reason he did so is a parable is an earthly story that helps us understand a heavenly meaning. So if we can take an earthly story today, and our story is going to be baseball, and we can attach a heavenly meaning to that, then my prayer is that we'll understand some Christian concepts more concretely. What we're talking about today is home run faith. If you got your notes with you, if you'd like to take these notes, these are really simple today. Anybody can do this. We're going to be talking about four bases. That'd be first base, second base, third base, and then home plate. And what we want to have is we want to have a home run faith. We just don't want to get on first and stay there. We don't want to get on second and stay there. We don't get, want to get on third and stay there. We want to make it all the way around the bases. Matter of fact, I'm going to ask Mr. Robert to stand up. Robert Mayfield, he's got our friendship softball team jersey on. Will you turn around, show everybody. Does that look nice? Amen. Matter of fact, we hope most of the softball team will be here for the second service wearing their shirts. And so we're going to try to connect that message with them as well. But uh, as I mentioned, we want to have the complete picture of what the salvation and Christian process looks like. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to start by getting on to first base in the salvation message. And the first base would be admit. We have to admit that we are a sinner. Before you can believe that Jesus died for your sin, a prerequisite is that you have to admit that we are a sinner. And I'm going to mention several scriptures today. There's going to be some I want you to turn to here in a moment. But I want to start with 1 John 1, 9 that's in your notes. It says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as I mentioned in the process of salvation, in order to get on first base, you have to admit that we are in a sinful condition. You can't get to second, which is believing in Jesus, unless you've crossed admitting our sinful condition. We also find that this step is normally most difficult in the evangelism process. The biggest challenge we're going to have in presenting the gospel is convincing somebody that they are in the sinful condition. I like the quote when Billy Graham was talking to Muhammad Ali. He says, Muhammad, 
you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner too. He put it right out there. If you know Muhammad Ali was a Muslim. And see, a Muslim, they're going to think that their righteousness will earn their salvation. But Christianity is the opposite message because it says we can't earn salvation because we are sinners before God. That's how he sees us. He sees us in our sinful condition. So if a person can understand the nature of their sinfulness before a just and holy God, then that person will have to spend very little time convincing them of their need for a Savior. Does that make sense? If someone can understand that they're lost before God, they're lost in their eternal condition, you won't have to spend much time talking about Jesus. There was a story of an old preacher who was preaching in a new town, and a young preacher came for a visit. This young preacher was still wet behind the ears, so they were visiting, and this young preacher asked the old minister, well, how many have you gotten saved? And that old minister just smiled for a moment and said, young man, I'm not trying to get them saved. I'm trying to get them lost. Once they know they are lost, they will get saved. Isn't that so good? But modern evangelism tries to do the opposite things. We, start, we, we try to share the good news without spending adequate time on the bad news. You know what? If you look at the Old Testament, you could almost say that in the whole Bible, the Old Testament is at least 60%. Almost 75% of the Bible is the Old Testament. So I think God spent three quarters of the time telling us how bad we were so that he could spend 25% of the time telling his remedy, which was Jesus. I posted on Facebook this morning, Jesus loves me, this I know. That was a simple, you know what, that's why I come to church this morning. Jesus loves me, this I know. We've been singing it as we were a child, I'm going to sing it all the way till God calls me to glory and hopefully I'll sing it in glory land. But someone said, do you know that that's the, basically, that song is the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Telling us, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. God spent a lot of time of his word trying to show us that men are sinners. Somebody asked me, why did the men of God in the Old Testament mess up so much? Why would God want to write about those men? What's the answer? Because he's trying to show us that those men were sinners too. Those men were in need of a Savior too. There's no picture apart from Jesus Christ of any man in the Bible that was completely without error. Look at the man in the Old Testament that the Bible said was a man after God's own heart. King David, he became a king. He was this, this psalmist. I mean, wrote, wrote these books of the Old Testament and poetry and singing and everything. And, and built the, the, ushered in the way for the temple of God. And then what happened? He committed adultery. I just heard one of my very good friends that I knew a long time in ministry got fired because of sexual misconduct with some of his church members. And you know what, folks, that happens. And a lot of times we hear about it when it happens to a preacher because everyone puts a preacher on a pedestal. But do you know what that tells us? That preachers are sinners too. You know what it is? That, that's the truth. And, and we are held to a higher standard, and that's why we must pray for those in ministry because the devil wants to tear them down and wants to attack them. But there's no one in the Bible without error except for Jesus Christ. God's word tells us that we're sinners. I think the modern gospel has neutered its power to transform because in an attempt to be politically correct, the church has stopped telling people that they're sinners. The modern gospel has forsaken the law of God and the Ten Commandments to convince someone of their sin and instead simply presents a gospel that makes uh, uh, Jesus into a life enhancer. I'm going to give you an example. If you watch these preachers on TV, what I call them the smiley preachers, 
None of those preachers are going, on TV are going to tell you that you're a sinner. Why? Because they're worried about ratings. They want to get ratings up because Christian television is just like any television. It's a business. And so they're going to tell you that Jesus can make your life better. But let me tell you, the gospel doesn't say Jesus makes your life better. You can't make a dead person better. That's like saying, okay, you're going to be less dead. No, you're fully dead in your sinful condition. Jesus makes you a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. The real gospel says Jesus takes away basically everything about you and starts all over molding you into his image. It's not a better you. It's a new you. There's a popular book called Your Best Life Now. And you know, we spent all VBS looking at the life of Apostle Paul. We saw that he was shipwrecked, he was in jail, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was whipped. That doesn't look like your best life, does it? I think sometimes the gospel, we could call it your worst life now. Because when you start living for Christ, guess what? You're going to be persecuted. You're going to lose friends. You're not going to have the same society elevation that someone who's being a sinner will be. Because when you start living for Christ, other people will turn their back on you. The world will turn its back on you. Amen? Has that happened to anybody else? Have you lost friends because you're now living for Christ and you're not doing the same things that you were doing in the world? It's not about becoming better. It's about becoming like Christ. I want to give you an image about the nature of your transgression as being measured not by who you are as the transgressor, but being measured by one who has been offended. I'll give you this example. If you came up and you met me at Walmart, maybe I made you mad at church, and you came up and you slapped me in Walmart. Well, if I did the Christian thing, I, I would be offended, but I'd probably turn the other cheek. Okay? That'd probably be end of story. But what if you were visiting England and you went to the royal palace and you slapped the Queen of England. I wonder what the royal guard would do to you. Now here's the difference. The same offense that you committed to me was committed to the Queen of England. The offender didn't change. The offense didn't change. What changed? The nature of the person being offended. Now when you slap the Queen of England, they're probably going to slap you in jail. And they're probably going to have some high fine for doing that to their uh, monarchy. Now imagine this, if the Queen of England who was, who was finite, who was mortal, who was still a sinner, they have that much sense of justice against wrongdoing. How much more does a holy, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient God know that sin must be punished? See, some people think, well, you know what, if I tell a lie against Brother Robert and I tell him uh, uh, a little white lie, it might not hurt him. But the thing is, our offenses aren't against people. They're in against a holy and just God. And that determines the nature of our transgression. Not because of who we are, but because, because of who God is that has been offended. And here's the, the reality. The only way an infinite offense can be punished is with infinite punishment. This is what makes hell more clear. This is what makes hell make sense. Because the only way to judge an infinite sin against an infinite God is with an infinite punishment. That's the only option God has. Is that it must be punished. Why? Because God is holy and just. He is just. That means that he will punish sin. If you say someone is a good judge 
and, and, and uh, uh, someone stole from you, that good judge should say that they will repay you back. A good judge will cause justice. And God is a good God, and he will see that justice is done. If you have joined us recently for our study in Romans, you'll know that Romans chapter 2.15 says that God has written his holy law in the heart of every man. And that when we sin, we're not doing so without knowledge. Matter of fact, we're doing so with knowledge. The Latin term for with knowledge is conscience. Put those two together. You know what word you get? Conscience. The Latin term for with knowledge is conscience. Conscience. We sin with a conscience knowing that when we sin, it is wrong. Knowing that when we sin, we're breaking God's holy law. And whenever someone stands before God on the day of judgment, there will be no excuse because our conscience will hold us guilty. So we know we sin. And here's some good news. That getting on the first base of, uh, first base of faith is pretty simple. Fred, you don't have to have a PhD in theology to get on first base. All you have to do is say, God, I realize I'm a sinner. This is, this is probably, once you realize it, the easiest part. I can look in the mirror and say, I'm Jesse. Here's all you got to do is look into the mirror of the Ten Commandments and says, I'm a guilty. I'm a sinner. That's the first base. If you can, if you can get someone to that point to first base, they're going to go want to go all the way around. And this is why I'm spending an amount of time on this, this matter of sinfulness because most people in the church value the grace so little bit because they believe their sin is just a little bit. They believe it's small transgression. Well, I've not been a really bad person. I've not been like Hitler or I've not been, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, a thief or, or on and on and on. I've not done all those things. And so God hasn't had to forgive me much. But see, let me ask you the question, how many times did Adam and Eve have to sin? Just one transgression cast them out of God's eternal promise. So the thing is, one transgression separates you from God for eternity. But the good news is, we only have to admit that before God. And we find that in the Bible, the only way someone becomes aware of their condition before God is by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not the job of the evangelist to convince someone that they are a sinner. It is simply the job of the evangelist to preach the word of God. And then we let the Holy Spirit do this work. Because here's what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the best friend to the evangelist. Holy Spirit is the best friend of the Christian, to be honest with you. Amen? John 16, 8 says this, And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. You know, some preachers get red in the face preaching hellfire and brimstone. I think they're trying their self to do the work of the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is preach it. We just simply have to share the message and let the Holy Spirit carry it on. If we preach the Word of God and we preach the whole counsel of God, the Holy Spirit will do its work. I don't think Jesus was red in the face declaring the wrath of God. I think he was red in the face persuading people that they need to listen. They need to hear what the word of God is saying. Jesus, I believe, was a really, really awesome person. And people liked him. People followed him. That's because there was something unique about him. And he trusted the work of the Holy Spirit 
to carry on the message which he was preaching. The same message as John the Baptist. Repent and be baptized. We'll get to that in a minute. Before we can be found, we must first admit that we are lost. And it's pivotal that we understand this tenet because our appreciation of the payment of sin depends on our understanding on the depth of sin. Now, if you owe somebody $100 and they forgive you that debt, you're going to say, oh, thank you. Connie, if I owe you $100 and you forgive me, I'll say, thank you very much. But if I owe Kevin... $20,000, and he forgives me that debt, I'm going to be really thankful to Kevin. You see, your thankfulness to God depends on how much you see that you've been forgiven. Why is there complacent Christians? Because they're complacent about the payment of sin. They haven't seen that they were dead in their transgressions before God, destined to eternity in hell, and Christ forgave them. But first, we have to admit. Secondly, We have to believe. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Somebody say believe. How many of you guys watched that guy, Nick Walenda, cross the Grand Canyon on a tightrope? Did y'all see that? Okay. You know what? That was an example of operating on belief. This guy was a Christian walking across the Grand Canyon with no net. And he believed that the type rope would not fail. He believed that he would be able to go from one side of the Grand Canyon to another on a wire. And he actually did it. And the majority of the America and the world was watching him. You see, human beings operate in the realm of belief every day. Belief is not something new that we have to learn to trust in Jesus. We believe that our car will take us safely to work. You believe that when you come to church, you'll hear a good message. doesn't always happen, but at least you believe it. We believe that there's not poison in our Cheerios. We believe that when our doctor gives us medicine, it will not kill us. But something happens once we start getting churchified. I may have made up a new word today, churchified. That's when we become a Christian, we've been in church a long time, and we tend to think we're more educated than we actually need to be. We become churchified, and we start to complicate the matter of belief. The thing is that the gospel is so simple a child can believe it, but also so simple that the smartest minds have a hard time understanding. Some of the smartest people in the earth have a hard time understanding the gospel. And the answer is because it's so simple. How can I get from hell to heaven by belief? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that you're transported from death to eternal life by believing I mean, really, we preach about so many things, and it comes down to, do we believe? That's, after we realize our sinful condition, what do we do? What do we do? We believe that Jesus paid the price for our sins. And you know what? I don't fully understand that Jesus Christ, the eternal revelation of God's nature, became sin on a cross for me. And fully satisfied the wrath of God which was stored up for my sin. But I believe it. I don't fully understand how the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who existed for eternity became separated when Jesus was on the cross. So that we could be grafted into that fellowship for eternity. But I believe it. I don't fully understand that God would choose to take a filthy, wretched, dead sinner like me and 
pick me up from the miry clay, dust me off, make me a new creature, invite me to share the greatest message the universe has ever heard. I don't fully understand it, but I believe it. You see, I don't understand that God knows already the begin, the end from the beginning and how he knows every action of every person of every second, but he still will accomplish his holy will, but I believe it. How do we do that? The only reason that we have the, for this confidence is this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. You see, it comes down to this point. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our guide. Not the opinion of man. Not the opinion of Velma. Not the opinion of Fred. But what this book says is God's revelation to us. And if we stray from this book in one point, then what keeps us from straying from all of it? Amen? A life of sin is faith in the self, but a life of salvation is faith in Christ. Once you believe that Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins, you are transported from death to life. That's amazing. It's like your faith, your belief, becomes a train, a subway, a bus that carries you an infinite distance in a second from death to life. My sister works in the emergency room at Myrtle Beach Grand Strand, and this past week there was a 16-month little boy. Someone left the back door open. He walked out the back door, and he fell into a swimming pool. And they brought him to the emergency room and she performed CPR on him for several minutes. He'd already been dead. He didn't make it. You know what? That's a sad story. But can I tell you a sadder story? That millions and millions and millions of people will die today without the chance of being revived. For eternity. Eternity. People are dead in their trespasses without the reviving power of a holy God there is no hope for their eternity there is no hope and yet what the world has talked about this week is a southern diabetic cook that said something 27 years ago and that's what people worry about who gives a rip Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered, Jesus says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. When you trust in God, when you find that you've put your faith in God, what we realize is it is actually a gift from the Spirit. Because a a dead man can't choose to have faith. God gives you the faith as a spiritual gift to believe in him. It comes from him. That's what Jesus told to Simon Peter. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. When we finally trust in Christ, it is a spiritual regeneration. We're moved from death to life. And through our belief in Christ, we are made a living creature. We are giving immortality by belief. Third base is this, man. I'm on second base. I believe. Hey, home's halfway there. Let's go to third right quick. Third base is this. Confess. 
confession. I'm not talking about the Roman confessional. I'm talking about the Romans 10.9 confessional. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What the heart believes, the mouth will speak. This is pretty logical conclusion. Here's the thing. That's what I'm saying. Once you get to first base, you're logically going to hit all the rest of them as long as you know where you need to go. What the heart believes, the mouth's going to say. Confession means that we're not a closet Christian. It means that uh, Christians can come out of the closet. Let's not worry about other people in the closet. Let's get the Christians out of the closet. Who's there? I'm a Christian. That's what we need to do. That's confession. That's becoming public that I'm now a new creature. I now have a relationship. Have you ever had a friend that you were ashamed of? I hope not. Every friend I have, I'm a friend with Miss Janice. I'm a friend with Robert. I'm a friend with Dean. And if someone says, I'm going to say, hey, have you met my friend? This is what confession is. Jesus is now my Savior. He no longer calls me servant. He calls me friend. That's what we call our church, friendship. Enjoying friendship with God, sharing friendship with people. Man, Christianity is about having a bunch of friends forever. Who wouldn't want that? Confession simply means that we become public about our faith. Now, if you live in Syria, and you might be killed for being a Christian, you might want to be a little more selective about who you tell. But here in America, you can be open about your relationship with the Savior. Confession means public acknowledgement. That's what the Scripture says. It means you publicly acknowledge Christ. Matthew 10.32, Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. When we confess our sins to God, then we can confess our Savior to man. Have you ever thought about that? We confess our condition to God so that he can regenerate us, and now we can confess our condition to man. I told God I was a sinner, but then God may be something else, and now I'm telling people I am a Christian. I talked to God about what I was. I talked to people about what I am. That's good. That's all it is. Past, present, future. I was a sinner. God forgave me. Now I'm headed for glory. Sometimes we think that if we admit to having a Savior, people will think that we are weak. But praise God, in our weakness, He is made strong. I remember Jesse Ventura, governor of wherever he was, he said that Christianity is for weak people. The Bible says when I'm weak, he is strong. And I want God to be glorified. So if it makes me look weak, praise God. Because I want to see people that Jesus is my strength, not me. You think you can get through your life on yourself that you're strong enough to make it into heaven by yourself? Good luck, buddy. There's not a lot of hope for you. In our need for a Savior, he is glorified. How many people do you know in your neighborhood, at your workplaces, that are searching for meaning, purpose, and value, but they will not find it until they know that Christ is the answer? And here's what Romans 10, 14 says. How can they believe in one they have not heard? What's the purpose of your confession? So that other people will see the hope that is offered to them for eternal life. That's the purpose of you saying you're a Christian. And it doesn't have to be just a Christian uh, t-shirt or a bumper sticker. It needs to be with our mouth. The Bible doesn't say if you believe in your heart and confess me with your bumper sticker. That's not what scripture says. We confess with our mouth because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when we confess Christ, we say, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. The effect of that is that other people see the hope that you have and are drawn to it. Confession does not have to start before the world. Matter of fact, confession starts in front of the church. That's why at the end of service we invite people to come down the aisle and to confess that they're a Christian. 
It doesn't matter if you're 7 or 70. The church wants to rejoice with you and stand beside you and pray for you. And lastly is this. If we get to third, we've admitted, we believed, and we've confessed. If we go all the way, we come home to home plate, which is follow. Now, I think some people stop at third. But we need to get all the way around and follow Christ. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is something that happens to us after salvation. But in the New Testament, it was synonymous with salvation. What do I mean by that? In the New Testament, the way you became a Christian was you showed that you were baptized. If you were a Christian, they would ask you, have you been baptized? If you have not been baptized, they didn't really think you were serious. And I've met some people that have been Christian for five years, ten years, said, Pastor, I've never been baptized. And maybe because they never had a preacher that really told them what it meant. I mean, if I it was engaged to my wife for ten years and I never showed up on wedding day, people would start to question my commitment to my wife. If I didn't walk down the aisle and say, I do, honey. We would wonder, are you really serious about that? So maybe there's somebody here, you've been a Christian, you've never been baptized. I'm going to invite you at the end of service today, after communion. Or, matter of fact, before communion, make it public. The key here is not that baptism saves you, but that baptism is the overarching symbol of what Christ has done in your life. This is why baptism is a really big deal. And secondly, it's why I'm proud to be a Baptist. The only times in the Bible where baptism is mentioned is in the case of a believer. And because Baptists believe in something called sola scriptura, like I said, this alone is our God. So any other case about baptism simply becomes man-made and not scripture-made. The only choice for a biblical worldview of baptism is that it occurs to a believer. I'm not going to harp on that. I'm not going to stand on my soapbox. I'm going to say, praise God, we're Baptists, and we simply believe what the Bible says. What does it mean to be a Baptist? It means I believe what the Bible says. Somebody says, why are you a Baptist? You simply tell them, because I believe the Bible. doesn't mean all Baptists are going to heaven. It just means that we affirm that Scripture is our God. Amen? The other week, someone visited our church, and they posted on Facebook that four people followed in believer's baptism. And some lady commented, she says, I can't find believer's baptism in Scripture. (laughs) Well, read all the cases of people being baptized and ask if they were a believer or not. The answer is yes. You won't find the word rapture in the Scripture, but it means we will be caught up with the Lord. Believer's baptism means you're a believer and you're ready to show Jesus has washed your sins away. Matter of fact, there's some mountain Baptists that would never have a baptism. Well, you know why? They will only baptize in a river because they believe the river represents that the sins are washed away. Maybe that's why a preacher feels so dirty because we stand in that pool and it kind of builds up over time. I'm just kidding, everybody. Maybe we need like a water fountain in there or something. Get it flowing out. But see, the reality is that we're saying our sins have been washed away in baptism and we come up a new creature. And that's what baptism is for. Praise God, I'm not sprinkled with grace. I'm immersed in it. The Greek word is bautista. I'm sorry, baptizo. That means immersion. The only biblical view of baptism is an immersion. 
Christ has covered every, every part of me. Not just my head, not just my shoulders, but he's covered the dirtiest part, even my feet, even my armpits. He's washed the dirty stuff away. So here's my question. Janice, will you come? I'm going to ask you this. Number one, if you've never become a Christian, what you've got to do, admit, believe, confess, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. I'm going to be waiting right here for you to walk the aisle and say, Pastor, I'm ready to become a Christian. Don't wait one day longer. Secondly, if you've never been baptized, you're a Christian, you've lived as a believer, you've never shown through immersion, your sins have been washed away, I'm going to invite you to come. And then we're going to have communion together. As I said, we practice open community. That means if you're a Christian, you participate. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you not. Because this represents what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And if we've not participated through faith, then we shouldn't participate through action. Let me pray. Father, I pray that whatever you're doing in the hearts of believers this morning, you'll have your will in your way and that people will respond according to your leading and your guiding. God, we thank you that you've given us a comforter that convicts the world of sin, but also reveals to us the gift of faith, the gift of our righteousness in Christ. We pray if you're doing something in somebody's heart today, that they will make that public. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand?